So we 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 generally have uh, what we call the yeah this this six um, sport type movements. So they are a single squat, drop jump, um, deceleration, a lateral shuffle with a lateral stop, a ninety degree change of direction, and a single leg up. So in our experience, we generally like to think that if the player is exposed to all of these six movements and he can handle all of these six movements, these movements, which are for us the foundations, are sufficiently automatized in order to progress the player out on the pitch. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So in this episode, we welcome Filippo Piccinini. Last week, we had Matt Buckthorpe on the Pacey Performance Podcast, where he gave a really detailed overview of an ACL rehab from pre-op early stage mid stage and late stage and we spent a little probably the last 20 minutes on that late stage but in this episode with Filippo we take that on and spend the majority of time in that late stage and specifically on field rehab but not just ACLs any long-term rehab so Filippo goes into a lot of detail detailing his number of ways that we can progress athletes to give them confidence psychologically and physically through that late stage on-field phase. So a really interesting episode for anyone that's uh, taking an athlete through any long-term injury, not just a hamstring or Achilles or an ACL, but any long-term injury because these principles can be applied to all long-term injuries. So a really interesting episode coming up with Filippo. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. Also sponsoring this episode is Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic floor and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organizations through their own proprietary formula to create a world-class environment for coaches and athletes alike. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf has been the cornerstone of training facilities for over a decade. With the addition of the new Icon X Rack Range, Play are once again set to elevate the industry. If you're interested in knowing more about Play, check out their website, play.us, that's P-L-A-E dot U-S. So without further ado, over to the episode with Filippo. Filippo Piccinini, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. I have, firstly, I hope I haven't butchered your name. Secondly, thank you for giving up some uh, some time to, to have a little chat around late stage rehab. Rob, thank you very much for inviting me. Such a, a huge pleasure. And the, my surname is absolutely correct. So uh, thanks for that. But yeah, no, thanks for the invitation. I'm uh, looking forward to spend the next hour time together and uh, let's crack on. 
Thank you very much. And I appreciate that. It's it's the it's the thing that I fear the most. Genuinely, the thing that I fear the most in the podcast is pronouncing people's surnames incorrectly. So uh, I'm glad I got the... I didn't quite put my Italian accent on, but I didn't. I did it's, all right. I'm, I'm happy with my performance. <laughs> happy with my performance. So, Filippo, before we get into the late stage rehab side of things, would you mind just giving us a brief one or two minute bio of, of who you are? Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, obviously, my name is Filippo Piccinini. I'm the currently employed as the head of late stage rehabilitation and sports science with Isaac Kinetic Medical Group London. Um, Isaac Kinetic is a, a sport medicine and orthopedic rehabilitation group. So we, we it's an Italian company. So we have around seven, six, seven clinics in Italy, only one in London, and we're going to open a new one in Athens. So we generally do provide. Um, return to sport services to uh, a wide variety of people, uh, ranging from uh, professional athletes to non-professional population. So yeah, our job is just to help people going back to the same activity where they got injured, the same sport um, generally. And um, so yeah, I've worked with Azkinetic for uh, the past five years. Um, I'm currently also um, in the process of completing a PhD uh, with Samara University in uh, in London, and I'm I'm sure we're going probably to talk about some of this topic today. But PhD is currently related on uh, management and uh, late stage rehabilitation approaches after long term injuries. I'm uh, pretty passionate about uh, ACL and hamstring injuries in uh, in football players. Um, so yeah, at the moment I'm based in London. Uh, I did a uh, uni back in the days in Italy, and uh, yeah, currently uh, I'm uh, I'm employed with Asgenetic, but specifically uh, I cover uh, the late stage rehabilitation. So my job is to help people returning back to sport, specifically bridging the gap between uh, uh, the physiotherapy-based rehabilitation that we usually see in the gym. And uh, the phase where the player is generally returning to the to the team back in uh, in training. Well, it's a good job that your passion is ACLs and and hamstrings. It just happens that that is part of the discussion today. So uh, just a, just a coincidence that that marries up. So when it comes to kind of bridging that gap between what goes on in the gym and transitions onto the field and then transitions back into training, you done some work recently breaking that that on-field rehab into into stages. Would you mind just giving us a bit of a breakdown of, of what that looks like? And then we'll probably take each stage by stage and dive into a bit of detail on each one and and flesh that out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so basically, so on-field rehabilitation is is what we generally describe as a, as a service, but at the same time, it can be a fantastic environment, for example, where, uh, where the footballer is nicely progressed generally, or generally the halfless is generally progressed toward uh, team training. So um, on-field rehab in our rehabilitation approach represents the very last stage. So it's the stage where we help our players to get the confidence back to restore workload, to help them to go through certain specific um, technical, but also tactical drills. Um, the idea is, as you said correctly, is to try to bridge as much as we can any difference we generally see between uh, the gym-based environment and the team training environment. So, so on-field rehabilitation is, is generally uh, composed in our method uh, by five different stages. So 
Um, Matthew Bactor, which is my PhD supervisor, did actually a fantastic job in uh, in publishing a couple of uh, papers on uh, on rehabilitation, and uh, so he he generally explained our progression in uh, in isokinetic. We generally start from stage one. So the stage one is is that stage where we push the player through what we call linear movement. So we generally have quite a lot of pre-planned activities. Uh, nothing is uh, reactive or uh, unplanned in nature. So the idea is. You want to try to help the player in restoring confidence, uh, but also familiarize with the same environments where he generally got injured in. So it's the activities on the pitch generally are maintained very basic. So we try to separate what we call uh, conditioning specific drills, like running type of uh, drills to uh, very simple basic technical drills. So the important thing in this stage is to try to avoid too much mix between the uh, activity that you generally try to um, deliver and perform with a player. So for example, uh, the main three groups of activities we, we generally run are obviously technical drills, at the beginning, uh, different type of like conditioning drills, but at the same time, uh, it's an important stage where we uh, try to bridge any difference in uh, what we call movement quality. So especially, for example, after ACL injuries, it's pretty normal to see that the player, they're not extremely comfortable in performing certain type of movements, especially cutting. So stage one is a fantastic opportunity to help the player to gradually transition from the indoor to the outdoor environments and helping him or her to perform different type of drills, especially um, like cutting or, or different type of movements, just simply in a different environment. So we don't want anything uh, reactive. We want to make sure the player is nicely familiarizing with this new environment. Um, stage two, uh, progressively the player is going just, into... Just, be ju I'm just going to interrupt. Sorry, Filippo. Just sure. going, back to, going back to stage one and even prior to that. Okay. How do we know... Or what do you do to ensure that you know that an athlete is ready to progress to that on-field rehab stage and bridging that gap from from the gym? Is anything objective or subjective that you use to, to make sure you've got that right? Yeah, in terms of the, the criteria we generally look at in transitioning the play, right? Okay, so the, uh, the generally... I would say criteria are obviously extremely important. Uh, they're like some boxes that we need to tick, obviously, before the player is progressing to to the pitch. So just to let's say, just to summarize them in uh, in three important groups, we ensure obviously player they have restored sufficient amount of strength. Strength is obviously important because it's linked to movement quality, it's linked to fatigue tolerance, etc. So analytical and functional strength for us is pretty important in uh, in our patients. We don't want generally to progress any patients with an excessive amount of uh, difference in terms of deficit in, uh, in strength between limbs if it's like a lower limb injury. Um, so obviously we test that in different ways with the isokinetic machine and uh, functional strength. But the important thing is strength is an important pillar to uh, target uh, before progressing the patients out uh, on the pitch. Uh, we generally also um, promote um, the ability of the player or the patient to run properly on treadmill. We we do recommend generally some uh, running mechanics assessment, but um, there's some studies, there's some research about that. But the important thing is we generally want a normalized running mechanic before the player or the patient is transitioning back on the pitch because likely 
uh, once transition on the football pitch, the activities that the player is going to complete, they're just going to increase in terms of intensity and complexity. So it's likely to see some uh, compensation strategies that the Neuromaster system can put in place if the player is exposed to too much advanced activities and not practiced before. So the ability to run on treadmill for us is a very important criteria. And also at the same time is confirming that the player has been sufficiently exposed to a certain amount of load before transitioning to the on-field rehabilitation stage. A very peculiar part of the rehabilitation that we have in isokinetic is a is an environment that's called grey room. It's basically a movement analysis room where we generally retrain movements. So the last important criteria and component of our process is optimizing movement quality. So we make sure that the player can move sufficiently well in uh, into like pre-planned type of activities before progressing on the on the pitch again. So we generally retrain, for example, uh, deceleration, acceleration, and cutting. So basic movements that. Uh, in a separate way, the player likely is going to perform once transition on the football pitch. Uh, but at the same time, we ensure that the player is developing sufficient quality into this movement. It's important because likely uh, once the player is exposed to a reactive type of activities on the football pitch, the uh, cognitive um, aspects of the movement, so basically the player is, is simply more focus on the technical task or the tactical uh, elements rather than the producing the right movement. So automatizations of the movements for us is an important aspect of the process. But at the same time, it's important criteria before uh, transitioning the player out. So we have a movement analysis system where we generally uh, score six different movements with the idea to develop sufficient quality. So the goal is uh, sufficient automatizations of what we call uh, sport types movements. So these basic movements that um, we evaluate, obviously, to ensure that obviously the player can tolerate a certain amount of workload on the pitch, but at the same time to ensure that the player is sufficiently exposed to workload before transitioning on the pitch. Yeah, just to, just to summarize them. Um, I would say strength is an important component. It goes quite a lot. Uh, uh, along movement quality, so with sufficient movement, with sufficient strength for busy player, present and show sufficient movement quality, and a minimal amount of uh, those in terms of running exposure on a treadmill with normalized running mechanics. You mentioned the six qualities that you'd uh, look at in that movement analysis room. What that? Can, yeah. can you explain what those are, Filippo? So we, we, we generally have uh, what we call the yeah this, this six um, sport type movements. So they are a single squat, drop jump, um, deceleration, a lateral shuffle with a lateral stop, a 90 degree change of direction and a single leg up. So in our experience, we generally like to think that if the player is exposed to all of these six movements and he can handle all of these six movements, um, with a sufficient quality from, uh, uh, for example, like a lower limb point of view, pelvic point of view, and trunk point of view, these movements, which are for us the foundations, are sufficiently automatized in order to progress the player out on the pitch. But at the same time, we know, for example, that uh, trunk leaning or pelvic instability, they can likely lead, for example, to um, lower limb instability. So this is the reason why our limb stability in, uh, in um, long-term injuries is not the only component that we generally checked. Okay, we, we asked, we, we call them um, criteria again. So we, we ensure sufficient limb stability, 
but at the same time we ensure sufficient pelvic stability and control and trunk uh, stability. This is because we don't want any in, what, we, what we say the movement impairments when uh, the player is progressed and assessed via this, this basic task. But at the same time, we, we check the player's ability to absorb sufficient amount of uh, work by the, by the lower limb. So the shock absorption, what we call this, is the last important component. So I generally work with quite a lot of players, and interesting to see that most of the time when you ask them to perform, for example, like a deceleration in that room, they generally perform very stiff and rigid deceleration because in their head, obviously, they need to perform on the football pitch rather than maintain movement quality during the task. And we use this system to try to understand also how well the player is moving and, and how much awareness, I would say, they have in, in, their, in their body to control very basic movements. And I, I can tell you, I've seen quite a lot of football players scoring really bad in that test. It's mainly because you push them into what we think are very basic and simple movements, but at the same time, this is going to challenge their neuromuscular system to a point they cannot control their body properly into automatized movements. And this is something that we generally see is completely amplified, especially after long-term injuries like, uh, like ACL injuries. So one, once we score, uh, one we score the test, so we try to uh, objectify the uh, movement quality of our place. If we are happy enough with the score, and especially if the player was able to perform all of these movements with a certain amount of intensity and speed, then the doctor generally, which is the case manager, in, in, um, in the, after like a conversation with myself and my colleague, we are generally happy to progress the player uh, out on the pitch. This is also proving that the player, as we said, can tolerate a certain amount of movements and a certain amount of workload before um, starting going on a football pitch. There's, a, there's not like a general, I would say, guidelines or a gold standard in progressing players out on the football pitch but talking with some colleagues in football clubs for example they generally uh, do not spend too much time retraining movements and working on movements they generally transition the player out on the pitch for inline running etc but most of the time when i talk to players they uh, they will probably place they will tell you that they're not actually very confident in uh, cutting or stopping so this is something i like to think okay, I want to retrain this earlier because I want to make sure the player is in a position where he can stop, he can accelerate, and he can cut properly once on the pitch. So this is why we generally spend time in, in these environments to retrain these qualities before transitioning the player out on the football pitch. Amazing. Right. I interrupted then, Filippo. We've gone forward to go back again. Let's accelerate forward to stage two. What does that look like? So stage two generally is, uh, so first of all, we generally progress players or patients, athletes to stage two when they prove they have uh, sufficient quality in terms of movements from uh, inline uh, movements, pre-planned movements, but at the same time, if they're able to complete a certain amount of workload. Okay, so players generally uh, in our clinics during the own theory have process, they are monitored with GPS technology, so obviously we're able to quantify the amount of workload they experience on the football pitch. So it's not all about the psychological readiness of the player to transition from inline to multi-directional movements, which is generally characterized stage two, but it's also the ability of the player to tolerate progressive workload, progressive increments in workload, because it's important that 
um, the criteria generally we use to transition the player, they are not just, uh, I would say, externally related, so related to the, the psychological and the confidence of the player to perform certain drills and certain exercise on the football pitch, but it's also how the the internal physical response uh, says. So, for example, is the knee reacting? Is the knee swelling? Or uh, is the muscle coping with certain activities that we're doing? Likely, once the player is not sufficiently prepared to be on the football pitch, you might see knee joints uh, swelling, you might see restrictions, progressive restriction in range of motion, and generally you might see also the player um, physically struggling right, to progress stage to stage. So stage one to stage two, generally we move from inline, inline movements to multi-directional, uh, multi-directional drills. This is also a stage where we progress at the same time as technical drills. So it's a stage where I usually I like to introduce uh, basic technical drills with a player. Obviously, players love to the moments where you introduce the ball on the pitch for the first time. So this is something that you can you can hold them hold them back too long uh, because uh, otherwise they they're not compliant anymore with the process. So we generally perform multi-directional movements such as cutting and change of direction. But as I said, for the stage one, they generally happen in separate drills compared to technical drills. So it's important to maintain uh, the sessions. Um, and the drills that we generally deliver to the player are highly controlled. We don't want mixed drills too much because otherwise this is going to add complexity in the type of activities that we're going to perform on the football pitch. And the last important component, obviously, we want to see from a GPS point of view a nice and progressive incrementing workload toward a stage three. So just going back to probably ask the same question again, is there anything objective in terms of using... Um sports tech using technology to identify that you're confident to go from stage two to stage three and well i'm probably going to ask that every single time but that that's fine is there anything that you use specifically here that guides you to understand that that athlete is or patient is ready to progress so generally uh we check obviously from a gps perspective we check different type of metrics so this is the stage where we said stage two we add multi-directional type drills so likely cutting deceleration acceleration so from a gps point of view uh, i like to see for example the amount of workload the play is completing around this metric so acceleration deceleration i like to see that this workload is, is going to increase but at the same time i'm checking the knee response or the muscle response from uh, the type of drills i'm delivering to the football pitch so for instance i like um, 12 and 24 hours um, post sessions monitoring with my players so we generally check the uh, again like knee, knee range of motion the the pain that they can potentially experience in the knee or any like adverse reaction that ideally we, we want we don't want to see in terms of like load progression is I think more related to the tissue like the soft tissue capacity to tolerate increased workload um, so usually novel type of loads so for example like a new uh, like a, like a change of directions or, or the load generally that the player is experiencing in, in a new movement that has never performed before at that intensity is obviously generating a certain amount of stress in the in the body and and likely the main structure they're going to re- react they are like the soft tissues so like the muscles if i generally see for example that the player is not recovering sufficiently enough 
uh, session to sessions because, for example, the load was uh, too much or, for example, the drills were like too complex and he put in place some like compensatory strategies. Generally, I like to manage uh, load a bit differently. So I'm not probably going to increase the workload too much and I'll probably hold the player a bit longer into that stage before transitioning it, for example, to stage three or to a different stage. So it's important not just the external response in terms of the GPS metric, the amount of workload that we expect the player is completing for certain amount of GPS metric, but it's also important the internal response. So is the player coping with that load? Is going to, you know, like uh, familiarize with the movements? He's going to perform the movements in the right way? Is the quality of the movements good? It's not always just about the workload because likely we can push the player through quite a lot of workload and then they recover, but most of the time is not is not going to be enough. So like a proper planning, I think is going to be is going to be very important. But for me, the internal response is prop is key in order to progress the player to stage one or two, to stage two to three, etc. With that said, Filippo, do you have any kind of general targets for accelerations or decelerations or total distance, high speed running? You know, what 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 kind of GPS metrics are you looking at? And do you have any loose guidance to say, okay, we've hit that number, we've hit that number, we've hit that number, the internal response is X, we're happy to move. So generally, uh, again, from experience, I see, for example, that players, they do have the capacity to tolerate quite a lot of workload at the beginning, especially because the workload is very small. So likely, for example, from stage one to two, we're going to see quite a lot of big increments in load. So for instance, uh, one of the projects in the PhD I'm working on is uh, is a database on uh, more than 100 football players who are recovering who recover from uh, ACL injury, and they all uh, they were all aiming to um, resume 11 11 aside competitive football. So the interesting thing was that uh, the average workload, for example, the total distance, the moderate speed running, and the amount of acceleration deceleration performed between stage one and two did actually increase by 60%, which means obviously that the player was able to tolerate quite a lot of workload compared to what we thought. But again, the closer the player was going toward the end of the process, obviously the smaller were the amount of workload they were able to see between stages and weeks, for example. So if you want, if you want me to give some number, for instance, that player in stage one, they, they usually do cover between three, three to 4.5 K per session in terms of like total distance covered. Speed wise, uh, generally we don't exceed 20 kilometers per hour, so like five, 5.5 meters per second. This because it's going to place a different type of stress on the on the musculoskeletal system of the player. So we generally try to keep everything around 15 to 20 kilometers per hour. So like four, 4.5 toward five kilometers per hour in terms of peak speed. And we help the player to build uh, what I would say more volume. So that is the priority, I think. So you want at the beginning to avoid to push the player into too much intensity in terms of high intensity acceleration, decelerations and speed. But we generally try to prioritize what we call uh, more like the volume metric. So the total distance, the moderate speed running and try to basically create uh, like a foundation, like a baseline for the player where you can uh, accumulate more. So these, I think, uh, are the main metric. We don't, they don't obviously cover any, any, any high speed running in uh, stage one. This because it's just the, is the entry stage, it's the very beginning. But then generally towards stage two, you, you, you likely see some players probably more confident or better prepared to progress toward the on-free rehab that likely they can hit some uh, high speed running. Generally, I like, uh, 
like in stage two, uh, what I call like microdosing of a high speed running. So we, we try to go with a very tiny exposure uh, in some sessions of the week just to have a bit of stimulation for them, for example, for the hamstrings in alternation, maybe to some uh, extra gym based exercise they're doing. So I like the I like the on rehab environment also as an opportunity to uh, stimulate certain muscle groups via different type of activities that the player are doing. So for instance, when you expose the player for the first time after an ACL injury to some high-speed running, likely the player it will start to experience a bit of like fatigue in the muscle toward the end of a session and likely the same evening or the day after it will respond to you from the scale or the questionnaire that you sent to the player that actually the hamstring is sore but this is good because actually we, we were able to localize quite a lot of work for the hamstrings via that type of activity so when i explain to my students the own fury hab the own fury hab is a at the beginning it's just a, like a group of exercise that you that you combine all together and you create one session. And then you have the external response from the GPS. By the end of the day, it's important to design the right exercise to see the exact outcome from a, from a GPS point of view. Let's dive into phase three. What does that, what does that look like? Stage three, I think is very interesting because stage three is basically the first time that the football player or generally, uh, let, yeah, let's talk about football players. Football players usually are exposed to um, what we call obviously technical drills or uh, um, football specific elements. So this is the stage where all the foundations football related. So like, for example, passing, turning, stopping the ball in different way is done because usually it's completed in stage two. Stage three, you gradually start to uh, contextualize the technical drill a bit more. It's a stage where from a technical drill point of view, you're trying to keep everything very planned. Okay, we don't want any um, reactions again applied to football situation. This because alongside football technical drills, we generally add a bit more uh, reactivity into uh, movements. So, so as we said again, this is a stage where we have two important elements. We have the multi-directional type of activities, so like cutting, acceleration, deceleration, they are gradually increasing in terms of intensity and complexity, but they are also progress from pre-planned to reactive. But at the same time, we also have in the same sessions more uh, technical elements, so longer passing, dribbling with the ball and playing, so like different, very, very basic components. But at this stage, which is very, very important, we are not mixing together reactive drills with technical football stuff this is going to happen usually in stage four and obviously if we observe stage three from a workload point of view stage three again is that stage where we want to see from a, a gps data point of view a nice increment in load okay this is the stage where likely we see the player hitting a bit more peak intensity for example in acceleration deceleration this is another important metric that we generally check so which is the highest acceleration and deceleration they were able to perform uh, on the football pitch you you will likely see the peak speed increasing session after session and I like stage three also to um, as a stage where I'm trying to build a bit more volume around high speed running for the player. This is going to be in preparation of sprinting. Generally, this stage is, is, uh, is also a stage where you might see the player kind of like sprinting for the first time. So they generally achieve very, very good speeds, uh, likely professional football player because they, they generally approach uh, the on rehabilitation very, very prepared. So once you get up to stage three, you might see them able to hit some sprints maybe for maybe one sessions a week. Um, again, we generally 
I generally um, manage and modulate the the draws uh, quite a lot because uh, in I want to maybe achieve like different uh, different variable different aspects of the of the GPS, but. It's still a stage where I think the physical preparation of the player is still a bit more important compared to the technical and tactical components. So stage four, probably, as we're going to discuss in a second, is the stage where actually the player is um, brought into his own position, his role as a football player. And is where we generally run what we call position-specific football drills, reactive drills, etc. Just in, in terms of that... And, uh in terms of that introduction of the ball, which I know you highlighted, you know more than any how important that is psychologically for a footballer to to introduce the ball and taking me back to my playing days and I know how that important that is, that is as well. Is there any techniques or little tactics that you've implemented along the way to introduce the ball way earlier, but just to almost for the sake of it, but just so they can see it and feel it and, and touch it with the foot or whatever it is? Do, do you find that that you can do that and and do that from absolutely. a psychological perspective more than anything? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a very good point to be fair because uh, especially when you have players still, uh, you know, as as we said before in our process, uh, our players generally they they tend to complete quite a lot of sessions indoor because uh, we retrain movements, we expose them to plyometric drills, we we just do generally quite a lot of activities. So technically the time that they spend indoor is quite a lot so obviously i need to keep them entertained at one point during the session and probably the ball is the best element to do that so yeah generally i like actually to uh, reintroduce very simple technical drills even indoor so especially when the player knows that we are about to transitions on the football pitch uh, maybe in a, like one or two weeks times they they like the idea of like trying some technical drills before we go on the pitch likely they are a bit rusty they they don't feel really like confident with the ball so it's something that just to smooth the process more i like to to introduce indoor and generally i progress that outside but the idea, obviously, to introduce in the ball is it plays an important psychological component and element in the process because players, uh, I think running running is an important bit of the process. It's a very important milestone. But at the same time, footballers play football. So you need to introduce, introduce the ball at one point in the process. And when they see and feel, they can kind of like, the touch is still there after the injury, especially after long ACL injury they they don't touch the ball for like four five six months sometimes it's nice to see them you know that they're happy they know like okay I can still play football Uh, and and even even as a practitioner in my head honestly it doesn't make any sense because I know that the process is still very very long for them it actually give a a massive boost in confidence Uh, they also just obviously project them straight to their pitch so yeah definitely I'll introduce uh, basic simple drills Uh, sometimes you know combined to you know balance components etc i just invent different drills just to you know sometimes distract the player to the monotony of the session uh if if we're retraining movements you know you spend a lot of time correcting changing things etc so they like the kind of like the fun component in the session so i think this is an important aspect to consider uh with football players so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Filippo, hope you enjoying part one. So over in part two, Filippo continues with his five ways to progress on-field rehab from a long-term injury. So really interesting part two coming up with Filippo. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Vald. 
So I'm really proud to have Vald as a sponsor again. And after a recent visit to Vald HQ in Brisbane for their annual Vildcon event, it's incredible to see how far they've come as a company since I last visited uh, at the start of 2018. So from a very humble office of less than 20 employees back then, it's, it's amazing to see how far they've come. They now employ a global team of more than 200 that support clients across 100 countries, including many of the world's elite and professional sporting organizations. So an incredible uh, rise to where they are now. So this is a huge testament to just the impact they're having across the industry with their innovation, but also continued commitment to support clients. So if you're a performance practitioner, you probably know all about Vald, but if not, I'd recommend that you check them out at valdperformance.com. And now back to the episode with Filippo. I think now might be a good time to, to ask this question and there's been a lot of debate, especially on, on social media, about how much we take in terms of a technical model for sprinting from sprinters and how appropriate is that? Like, should we be taking the principles but adjusting them to fit our team sport athletes because team sport athletes don't run like sprinters? Do you have a particular technical model that you're working towards when it comes to the running mechanics side of things? I know we're moving on to kind of running retraining and the kind of reactive side of things but when it comes to the the model of how someone should look when they run i know that's a um we can't do that everyone because everyone moves differently but do you have a technical model that you work to when it comes to running mechanics and trying to get shift people to to something yeah definitely i uh, uh i mean over the years i i try obviously to try keep myself uh, as much as a could interested obviously to running running is a is a very huge element is important components because uh, that is basically the beginning for um towards sprinting high speed running and sprinting so i like for example quite a lot the um access access model uh, of uh, running and sprinting and i generally use also the altis uh, kinogram method for um qualitative assessment so i i I tried honestly to pick a bit from uh, from different schools of thoughts. You know, just just not the same uh, the same book. You know, not the same courses. I, I'm a very open minded, so I like also conversation. For example, with uh, 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 speed coaches from rugby, uh, for instance, if I think they're like fantastic. Honestly, in uh, in retraining uh, speed, um, I had a few conversations with uh, very very good practitioners from NFL. Uh, so I try to pick generally from other sports sometimes when it comes to uh, speed retraining for example in footballers and uh, so yeah altis i think is a, is fantastic in his um in his progression but also exos they generally have very very solid frameworks and, pro- and progressions for speed i generally um in terms of in terms of speed progression as you said i i start from very very early so i think uh, for example the lumbar pelvic control plays a massive important role in uh, in uh, in speed um retraining especially from a mechanical point of view so in a in a acl process for example again in football play we try to start from very very early to reintroduce this uh, this basic access because you know like most of the force that you produce during um, like a sprint is obviously transferred by the lumbar pelvic area and the core area. So generally we want really strong players, but at the same time uh, we want them extremely coordinated from a pelvic point of view. So we start very early in the process to retrain that. And then generally we progress toward more uh, like athletic type drills when obviously players are ready to do uh, certain things. I like the same principle of adding the... Sorry to interrupt. Sorry to interrupt. 
sorry to interrupt Filippo. How, in terms of the lumbo pelvic control, how do you go? How do you go about that? How do you tackle that early on, like you mentioned there? So generally, um, <clears throat> early on in the process, uh, let's say uh, even like a couple of months after surgery, uh, the idea is we try to progress the player, as we said, toward on-field rehab. So there's quite a lot of different components that we try to tackle. Uh, one of them for me is lumbopelvic control. It's not just because you want a nice lumbopelvic um, coordination for sprinting, but also because the lumbopelvic control played a massive role also in uh, multi-directional drills. Um, likely, if the player is not capable to control the knee after an ACL injury, it's not because it's coming from the knee, but it's coming from the pelvic area. So when I talk about lumbopelvic control, obviously I would like to to spend the, the, the whole afternoon talking about that because it's a very big topic but for me it's it's about the uh, hip flexors and hip extensors muscles and the coordination that you need to achieve into these muscles not excluding a, doc, uh, a doctor abductors these are the four more important muscle groups that gives you a nice lumbopelvic control in conjunction with your deep core and lumbopelvic area so we generally start early in the process so I when I talk with my colleagues for example physics in the gym we generally try to save a little bit of time in each session to start to retrain the pelvic area and the lumbar pelvic control from simple for example ground exercises like dead back dead back walk and simple like march on the ground this is just to reactivate the core area try to uh, develop um, lumbar pelvic awareness and uh, and basic foundation in order to develop that into more uh, like athletic drills um, this is usually done indoor I think this is actually an, another important important thing to mention. I think, uh, especially in uh, in players recovering from long term injuries like ACL, you don't want to wait for the on-field rehabilitation to try to correct the running technique. This is because likely the player will put in place quite a lot of uh, different compensation. So we want to make sure that this lumbar pelvic control and this uh, running uh, mechanics retrainings generally happen in the indoor environment and then it's progressed outdoor this is i think very very key is is just to avoid a, a, a like classic comp compensatory pattern that the players can put in place because you need to consider that most of the time they they just don't have the confidence to do certain certain movements and sometimes the on-field rehab is not the right environment to retrain uh, certain movements like like running or springing for example if you don't have like a nice foundation so i think lumbar pelvic control is just the one single element but then you know we, we can talk about for example um inter intramuscular coordination so there's, there's so many components that we generally consider in uh in in the in the running uh retraining process but uh, the main link i think between upper body and lower body is obviously the lumbar pelvic here and this is why i mentioned that and i think it's going to be a really important key aspect to consider uh in uh, in the process perfect sorry for interrupting there filippo no worries. just moving on to m moving on to stage four what does stage four look like again i'll probably ask the same questions so i'll ask it up front what kind of metrics are we looking for to hit is there any exit criteria come on the back of Phase uh, stage four to, to progress into stage five. What does that look like? So stage four, I think personally talking, I think is one of uh, one of the most important one. But at the same at the same time, is that stage where the player for the first time is going to perform specific football technical drills and tactical drills in a reactive and non-pre-planned way. So I think it's a it's kind of exciting stage because you, as a practitioner, you're going to see all the job coming together. 
because this is the first time where the player is actually challenged into position-specific football drills, for example, so related to his own role and positions, but at the same time uh, with reactive components. So this is the this is the stage where we we for the first time we ensure that the player is really coping with certain football-specific drills. Okay, so I like, for example, in this stage to sometimes record uh, very simple, like just a camera with some with some video. I like to record the player performing certain drills because as we monitor and assess movement quality into pre-planned drills in the previous stages, I like to do the same thing when we add uh, the reacting components. And and I can tell you, it's extremely fascinating because unfortunately we have some research telling us that some players are exhibiting. Um, some like injury specific mechanism even if they're not injured or actually some of them when they're transitioning from pre-planned to non-pre-planned so I think uh, the moment quality control is actually not stopping in stage three but it's actually carry on especially in stage four because stage four is you have the reactive element and this is extremely key because it's adding also context is acting much more uh, reality to the um, to the movements and the exercise that the player is performing so from a let's say from a, a qualitative point of view this is the stage where the idea is you want to replicate the same moments the same passages of training and generally games that the player is it should sustain back at the club we're not we're not aiming to do this with the same amount of workload but it's the first time that play actually is performing that type of movements and usually if i have for example other players on the football pitch all of them you know recovering from like similar injuries or they like roughly the similar level i like actually to to put them uh, together so they do some, like basic group uh, group training group drills and this is adding finally a bit of context which is going to replicate what they have back uh, back at the team but as we said before stage four is still not the stage where we're aiming also to see um, the same pre-injury uh, value in terms of workload is a stage where the player is probably around 70-80% of pre-injury workload values on uh, on the main GPS metric. This because, as we said, is the first time that you're finally putting together the technical, tactical components and the movement component from a, a reactive point of view. So if you're going also to add excessive amount of workload is going to be enough it's going to be too much obviously for the player to to handle so we generally keep players around i would say 60 i think probably towards 70 percent of uh, pre-injury chronic workloads and the aim is we give them this type of exposure in the view of progressing them to stage five stage five um, is is what we call basically the training stimulation simulation phase carry on filippo <laughs> gonna roll carry on to stage five Stage five is very interesting. Um, it's mainly for two reasons. You generally, uh, as a practitioner, there's a, as I'm a practitioner, obviously, there's an important difference to um, to the job sometimes you might see in, uh, in um, sports scientists or fitness coaches from football club. I generally see football players coming from all around the world. So they generally come from different clubs. So likely... I'm not in a situations where I can straight transition them back into the same team because uh, I don't have the same team in terms of availability. So stage five is that stage where it can happen back at the club because technically it's modified team training. But at the same time, if you are clinically based in my situation, I should be able to try to create like a very similar team training situations. But at the same time, all the sessions that we perform are um, are very workload focused. So this is the stage where 
Hopefully the player should have complete already some reactive drills, sport types, uh, movements, post specific movements, position specific drills. But this is the time to replicate the same amount of team training demand. So this is the stage where we want to try to smooth as much as we can the workload experience that the player is having. Is this because if, I'm, if we're not preparing the player physically enough to sustain a certain amount of workload, the following stage is the player transitioning back to the team. And likely we're going to experience a spike in load. Okay, so it's, it's extremely classic to see football players with very tiny hamstring injuries, for example, resuming training back at the club. This is because likely they haven't had enough preparation before. Okay, so stage five for me, the, the main priority is contextualizing drills as much as we can in terms of like a football football drill situation but at the same times we need to make sure that we're not missing the workload component this is very important because the goal is to try to prepare ideally the player physically for the same amount of workload they can potentially experience in team training but at the same time as a practitioner is going to be extremely hard because i i I don't have the player in a team situation. Most of the time, maybe I've got other players recovering from like similar injuries or at the same stage. So I can create drills where we obviously push the player to max intensity. We push the player to pre-injury values. But I need to be able also to create uh, that context component that most of the time is missed. Uh, when they have you know one-to-one sessions or uh, they train maybe with two to three players. But the idea for me is... I don't want to recreate the same team training environments. I'm just trying to create a similar experience for the player from a psychological and workload point of view that they can likely is going to be magnified back uh, back at the club. Generally, this is the stage where physically we can push the player toward the limit. And actually, we like to think that we want to try to slightly over-prepare the player physically in order to smooth the, the, the process once back at the club, especially from a physical point of view. This because we need to consider that the player back at the club is going to experience more cognitive, more physical load anyway. So we can tackle the physical component because we can just train, train the player more. But sometimes it's difficult, as we said, to recreate the uh, cognitive element. So this is the stage where we push the player to the limit generally. We need to test if physically the player can handle the same brain injury workload. So this is for me the most important components. And also, we try to target a little the cognitive component. So we try to add um, to the football drills some cognitive element, but also some context. So for example, um, some like um, drills where the player are working with two, three, four other players, if I have the opportunity. Or generally, this is the situations where when I have players, like local players coming, for example, from local clubs in London, it's a stage where they maybe come to us, they come to me for a few sessions during the week just to top up in terms of workload. But at the same time, they are transitioning back to the team and they may be completing the other 50% of the session back at the club. So... At this stage, honestly, there's not like a general rule. They, they have You have quite a lot of different situations. Generally, in a normal football club, you might see the player gradually transitioning into modified team training with the team. In my situation, I might have the player 50% for the week with me. So they maybe do like two to three sessions just to top up from a workload point of view. But while they're doing some like sessions back at the club. And this is just 
planned accordingly with the with the performance team at the club in order to smoothen the process. But on the other side, the some the some players, for example, they complete stage five back at the club. So they usually finish with some uh, reactive and sport types. Uh, so sorry, position specific drills in stage four. We advise the club, for example, they have achieved a certain amount of workload compared to pre-injury values, but at least they are aware that if they want the player transitioning back. In stage four, there's obviously a bit more physical preparation that need to be done for for that player. Amazing. Just picking up on the the psycho, you said psychological experience. I think that was a really interesting one. I think that that is appropriate for people in your situation that are external from the football club, but also those people who are are in the football club because injured athletes will feel. Um, Push, not pushed to the side, but, you know, separate from the rest of the group because they are. So how do you, especially in that later stage, but maybe as you go through as well, create that um, psychological experience of transitioning into team training to get them psychologically ready as well as as, as well as physically ready? So this is, I think this is a very good point and also very important because I think... Uh, the psychological component plays a massive role in, uh, especially in long-term injuries like uh, ACL or Achilles uh, uh, raptor injuries. This because the player has been away from, uh, you know, from the team for quite a lot of time, and this this is the situations where I think you generally see the personality of the player. I work with quite a lot of players; they are extremely confident, you know, psychologically to go back to the team. They actually can't wait anymore to be to be in the team but on the other side i work also with a lot of players interestingly they they don't feel comfortable around uh, some drills maybe that we do on the pitch so even if they have completed the physical preparations but you know we do, we do maybe some uh, psychological evaluation and we noted that the player actually is not that psychologically ready we generally try to hold the player back a little not because he's not ready to go back to the club but because we explain the player that I want also him psychologically ready to go back. And generally, I found interesting that when I can prove, especially from a, a number point of view with some GPS data, that the player is physically ready to go back to football, they actually get quite a lot of confidence. So maybe they're not extremely, you know, psychologically ready to to be tackled or to do certain type of cutting and passing or you know there's, there's some uh, there's some what we call worst case scenarios so there's some situation where they not feel comfortable around but i like to so first of all i like to, to create um like some situations where the player it feels comfortable to train uh, in terms of uh, for example, putting the player in pairs to some players at the same level or coming, for example, from uh, similar injuries. This is actually a very good strategy because they, they they build a relationship and they kind of like help each other to progress toward the end. But on the other side, we um, actually help the player in um, from, from, let's say, more, uh, more like, yeah, like a psychologically point of view again, but it's more... Uh, when when the player is on his own, for example, on the pitch, because this is another situation I have, it's not, it's not always situations where I've got all the football players, they can train together and then likely they, they push each other. So there's some situations where the player is on his own, is doing like one-to-one session, is maybe even like a pro footballer, so he's missing the context, he's missing the psychological readiness. So these are a more tricky situation because, again, from a GPS point of view, you can ensure that the player is physically ready. But I can tell you that you don't want a player 
not psychologically ready to go back to football after an ACL injury. Because unfortunately, I've seen also player re-injury just because of the psychological components. So they're not confident to tackle. They are not confident, you know, to, to get involved in the, in the situation in the game. So for those players, for example, I try to find some like, let's call them like anchors during the process. There might be a certain movements they are not able to do. And we replicate the movements many, many times during the session. And then we gradually, I gradually add a bit more context to the movements just to convince the player they're able to do it. Or to be fair, in some situation, I have to get involved in the session because this is the only way to help the player to, to, to become familiar again, especially around context. So I spend in stage five, for example, I spend quite a lot of time uh, doing like drills, including contact with the player. Obviously, they are highly controlled, but at the same time, at least the player is experiencing the content again. And I can tell he's, he's boosting his confidence amazingly. So for if any if I if you want me to give you like some some suggestion to practitioners out there, I think is is going to be very important to link as much as you can with a player. Because if the player is confident in the process, is compliant and he trusts you in terms of practitioner, also you're more able to convince him on certain barriers they can potentially develop during the late stage. So for example, not psychologically ready to tackle or not psychologically ready to contact, etc. So I think that the relationship with the player is the foundation. And then as a practitioner, we have like different ways, you know, to develop this uh, the psychological readiness to the player. But if the player is not engaged, is not involved in the process, and you ask the player, for example, to do certain drills replicating the same way you got injured, there's no chance that he's going to do the drill. He's actually holding himself back. And then you see from the GPS data that he's holding himself back. So the, the foundation, I think, is the relationship with the player. And I like sometimes when I get involved in the session. So I physically train with them sometimes, not the whole session, but obviously I do certain drills just to help and convince them they are able to do certain things. And from experience, I noticed it's something extremely useful to uh, to support also psychologically the player um, to transition back to football. What's your first touch like, Filippo? It's still good. Uh, it's good, but but the <laughs> it's still good. Uh, it needs a lot. Of, it needs a lot of practice, though. I haven't played football in ages, <laughs> but it's still there. It's still there. Good man. <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. That's all that you need. That's all you need. Well, thank you so much for that. Like incredible amounts of information there, which I'm sure listeners will gain so much from. Especially, like I said, and obviously the whole point of this conversation in that in that late stage um, on-field rehab situations for for long-term rehabs. So, Filippo, anyone that wants to get in touch with you, social media, uh, the the research that you've done, the research that you're doing, where's the best place? So uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so you can find me as a Filippo Piccinini on LinkedIn. I've got my Instagram profile as well, where sometimes I publish some uh, tiny insights from my from my job. Uh, is uh, Filippo Piccinini Rehab, and uh, yeah, I'll be I'll be more than happy to leave my contacts if anyone can reach via email or uh, LinkedIn. I'll be happy to uh, reply to any questions or uh, um, curiosity. Yeah, amazing. Well, I'm gonna let you go. Thank you for the last hour and five ten minutes really appreciate it and uh, look forward to staying in touch and look forward to publishing a article on sportsmith from you as well absolutely thank you very much rob for today 
just tuned in to episode 470 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoy the chat with Filippo and anyone that's going through or taking an athlete through a long-term rehab. I'm sure you got plenty from this episode. Big thanks to Filippo for giving up an hour of his time and also big thanks to Team Builder, Play and Vild for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in and look forward to chatting to you next time. Thank you.